Welcome everybody to the Wings Over New Zealand show. Uh, t- today's guest is Peter Lewis, who you will probably know from the forum as Flyer NZL. Welcome, Peter. Good af- afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've uh, come to know you on the forum from uh, your photography mainly and your your massive collection of historical notes. Um, but uh, can I um, ask you to sort of go back a bit and and tell us how you got into aviation and and all that? I had the benefit of spending my first few years living on the Devonport waterfront. This would have been in the days when the Waitemata Harbour was Auckland's international airport. And one of my earliest memories was, was hanging on the front garden gate and looking up and seeing the hull of a flying boat just passing overhead. I've got no idea now, of course, whether it was a Empire boat or a Solent or a Catalina or whatever, but I can just remember looking up and seeing this big grey hull passing what seemed to be very close over my childish head. That must have been before 1950, wow. as, as we moved away um, shortly after that. So that was my first involvement and knowledge of any aviation. Wow, okay. And, and you're still really uh, into the flying boats now, aren't you? Yes, I guess that sparked something. Um, I've always been quite partial to flying boats, which are really, of course, now a relic of the past. I've had the luck to fly at a few. I was in the ATC in the early 60s, and we had an ATC camp in Hobsonville. And after the usual daily routine of lectures and playing around with rifles and marching up and down and so on, we had dinner and then a few of us wandered down to the hard at Hobsonville just to sort of see what we could find. And lo and behold, tied up in the Braby was a Sunderland, which had been fitted out, as I understand it, for a flight to the Chatham Islands carrying the Governor-General. And because he was a Governor-General, they had put down a piece of carpet in the Bombay and a four or five easy chairs so he could cruise to the Chatham Islands in some comfort. <laughs> and of course, because this was a, a mod, they had to do a test flight before they risked his Excellency's neck in this thing. So they were about to do this. So they said to the group of us, hey kids, we'd like to hop in for a flight. So we said, oh yeah, great, we'll be in. I mean, there was no forms or indemnities or anything, they just pushed us all into the Bombay, shut the door, and away we went. <laughs> and it was just like a circuit over, you know, it took off from the harbour, um, circuit over North Shore and back down again. Um, and yeah, so I was probably one of the, the last few people to actually get a flight in a four-engine flying boat. Uh, since then, obviously, I've had a flight on the Woolworths Catalina. Um, a few years later, I had a grandmother on who lived on Waiheke Island and we used to go over there Christmas Day to see her and zip over on one of the um, widgets or the goose, whatever was around at the time. Um, it was a sort of a low-level trip. I doubt whether they exceeded 500 feet all the way over. Um, but yeah, that was interesting. And then, just earlier this year, I was in Vanuatu and we got onto Paul, who runs Vanuatu seaplanes up there, and we did a flight in his lake amphibian, which basically we went right around the main island um, did a few touch and goes at a couple of the harbours and ended up doing a water landing in Port Vila Harbour. So um, that's probably about as large a flyboat as you can get these days. 
right right okay um, so just going back um when did you start collecting information and photographs of, of aircraft when i was about i don't know 10 or 12 i was given a plastic kodak camera and I played around a bit with this, you know, taking these photographs of the cat and the dog and the guy next door. And that was okay. And then I got a little bit more interested and I thought, well, you know, rather than taking them into the chemist and getting the prints and negatives back of a few weeks later, I'd have a crack at this myself. So I got myself a plastic developing tank and a little plastic contact printer and started to sort of run up the household water bill, which pleased my father no end. Um, you know, developing these these prints and seeing what I could do, and of course the the plastic Kodak had fairly severe limitations. And at that time, my mother was working for Roseman and Warren, who were, among other things, the local NAC agents, and they used to look after the flights by the NAC dominee that used to fly between Onorahi and Wangarei and Fenuapai. And these were the days, of course, of fairly severe currency restrictions. And apparently there was a Russian fishing boat had come into Auckland and one of the crew had decided to give himself a few days travelling around the top of the North Island and had gone as far as Wangarei and run out of funds. So he came into Rosemont and Warren and offered to trade his camera for a seek back to, to Auckland. And which of course was taken up and so my mother bought this camera off Reg Roseman yep. and gave it to me as a as a present Christmas or birthday or whatever so of course that was the next step up from my my plastic Kodak and um, it had a couple of rangefinder which was really gee whiz but had no no exposure control so I had to save up some more of my paper around money and actually buy an exposure meter yep. and about this time I guess I started to get interested in aircraft and I pestered my father to go out to Onorahi at some some small air show where one of these NAC dominies was offering joy rides so again I badgered him to get me a flight on this thing he wouldn't come because anything that moved was he, he could get seasick standing on the wharf looking at the boat <laughs> and he certainly wasn't going to get into an aeroplane if he could avoid it but apparently I climbed into this thing and we took off and I took one look out the window and dived under the seat and hung on tight for the rest of the trip. <laughs> um, but something must have kicked in and that, that was how it started. And um, I started, you know, getting the usual sort of, you know, flight magazines and things that came out. And there was another one called RAF Flying Review and Air Pictorial. And somewhere along there there was a, a letter in one of the letters columns from a guy called Woodhall who happened to be in Christchurch, New Zealand discussing the local um, aviation scene yep. and he happened to mention that he was running a thing called the Aviation Historical Society of New Zealand and I thought oh that sounds interesting so um, I got in touch with him and the next thing I knew I was getting these little magazines which was discussing various aircraft around the place so at that point I started to haunt the local airfield <laughs> and you know worked out you know what was a Tiger Moth and what was a Fletcher and these sort of things. Um, aircraft were not plentiful on or, Arahi or at that time, so I'd sit at home and watch for the next thing to arrive over the horizon about once a week. Um, climb on my push bike and bike out to Onorahi, which took about an hour. Generally, when I, when I got there, I was about in time to see the visiting aircraft at 500 feet as it departed, north or south. <laughs> <laughs> but at least it kept me fairly fit at the time. <laughs> okay. And uh, it just went from there, you've just been. 
Yeah, well, I got into the ATC and the Year Scouts and started going to camps at Hobsonville and Fenuapai and these sort of places. Um, and I suppose the interest just sort of grew, really. Um, I did consider going into the Air Force and went down to Wigram, um, but I was found to have a, a heart murmur, which although um, was not a particular problem, and they were not particularly keen on hiring somebody that had a heart murmur. So, um, yeah, so sort of flying as a professional activity um, was not available to me at right. that time. Um, but yeah, so it was then more or less as a hobby type aspect from then on in. Right, okay. And um, so n- even now, you, you, you'll still go to airfields whenever you're travelling and, and take photos of the aircraft? Yes, we sort of haunt the dead airfields of New Zealand from, from time to time. A um, couple of years ago, we went over to Australia and hired a camper van going from Sydney to Adelaide. And I did some research beforehand and I worked out that providing we called in at four airfields each and every day for the entire trip, I should be able to get good coverage from A to B, but unfortunately I was sort of talked out of that. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to have impose some sort of limitations as to what I can see and what I can't. <laughs> but yeah, generally it works out fairly well. Um, you know, once you've been to an airfield a few times, you get to know which of the ones we're visiting, um, what you're likely to find there, and then of course there's always a surprise when you find it's something else. <laughs> well, I, I think that um, most people on the forum find it a real surprise how much you've actually got in your archive from over the years, and and it, it actually has become become a surprise if you haven't got it in your archive. That becomes a bit of a burden. Yes, um, <laughs> it's a, a case of when you have got beyond a certain point, everybody expects you to have everything. I may have no claim to having everything. No. I do have a certain amount, and I guess I know where to go and ask for a few other things if someone really wants them um, but yeah I mean nobody can possibly have everything or know everything and so it's just a matter I guess of sharing what you've got and um, hopefully other people can fill in gaps which I suppose is why I've done sort of a number of things on the forum sort of runs of various aircraft um, largely I suppose to see if there's other pieces out there that I don't have and don't know anything that has worked generally the other thing that I have always hoped is that people who have had personal involvement with a particular aircraft or a particular um, firm will come forward and share their experience That has happened in one or two cases, but not as much as I expected, really. Right, right. Well, I, I think those um, th- those threads that you've started on, particularly the Harvard and the DC-3, they've been fantastic. The Harvard one seems to have developed a life of its own, you know. It <laughs> seems to have taken off and left me well behind. <laughs> <laughs> the DC-3 one, I was hoping for a bit more input from other people on that, but... Um, you know, because I mean, there's got to be people out there that have flown DC-3s or, you know, worked on them or whatever. But um, perhaps that will come out in the future. Who knows? Well, exactly. And and a lot of the time, the, the threads go dead for a year, and then someone else joins the forum, finds it, and comes on with more information. So that did actually happen with the one on the original air truck. That the um, the PL-11 air truck. Um, right. You know, that ran for a short while because there was only two of them ever built. And then a year or two later, there was a chap from Australia who had actually worked 
in the workshop at the time um, and was doing some research on on the the firm rather than the aircraft I guess yeah. and he had a lot of sort of even movie film taken at the time right. and he had sort of compiled that into a DVD and so I was able to give him a small amount of help on that one um, but that's a piece of New Zealand history that would probably otherwise have disappeared um, over time Absolutely, absolutely Actually there's so much New Zealand history that uh, um, would have disappeared that comes out on the forum and it's it's great to have people like yourself who have the or took the time in, in the olden days to take the photos and, and collect the photos um, and, and the information it's uh, you know it's people like you that make the forum really really worthwhile yeah I guess there's a benefit there for um, people to look back at the way it was which is not necessarily totally um, as wonderful as some people like to think uh, <laughs> there were certain limitations um, but certainly it was a much more sort of freely accessible I think than now um, there was not the sort of the, the same amount of fencing and, and um, you know sort of antagonistic attitude towards people who visit airfields as we seem to be intent on developing these days Yes, exactly. That's one of your hot points, isn't it? The um, security on airfields at the moment. Yeah, it's when you go back, and I mean, the, even if you go back to the 1930s, I mean, the Auckland Aero Club, they had a, a huge clubhouse out at what is now the, uh, the International Airport site, and really the social life there was as important as the flying activities. Yeah. And, you know, even now you go somewhere like Dargaville and, you know, you find a bunch of guys and a few girls um, who sort of, that's their weekend hangout and they sort of sit around and chat and have barbecues and tell tall stories and have a few drinks and mow the lawn and in between times possibly get a bit of flying done. <laughs> and, you know, it's a social a social thing. Yeah. And to set up a thing which is virtually a flying school where you simply turn up, get, do your pre-flight briefing, have your lesson, sign it off and go home again. Um, that's really just like a driving school. I mean, you don't have a social life at a driving school or a flying school. It's simply there to have a lesson and you go away. Yep. And, um, you know, I think that's something that we are losing. And certainly, for the s smaller aero clubs at least, um, have made a lot of them non-viable because they no longer have that direct involvement with their local communities. Um, trying to sort of set them out as a sort of a, a restricted, fenced-off, um, guarded enterprise um, people just say why bother I'll go and play golf or um, mow the lawn or go to the beach or buy a boat or something uh, where I don't have to go through all of that absolutely actually that's that's really well put to my mind I mean there's two sorts of people who get involved in aviation there's the usually younger people who decide yep I want, I've got my eye on that left hand seat in the 767 or whatever and they set out to um, to accumulate the money and hopefully the experience and work the way up as a, as a c career move. But on the other hand, you've got people who, after a few years, they've got their house paid off, they've got the kids off their hands for the first time in their life, they've got a bit of spare money and possibly some spare time. And they're saying, right, you know, I've always wanted to, to, to do this, that or the other. And, you know, they can toss up between buying a boat, learning to fly, taking up croquet, whatever. Um, and if you make aviation inaccessible or just too difficult then really they'll take their money and their interest elsewhere yes yes 
Um, just to change the subject slightly, do I remember right that you were involved in the early days of preservation as well through the Aviation Historical Society? Only in a very peripheral manner. When AHS was first set up, it was simply a group of people, um, quite informal. And the Auckland branch, as it was then, had some contacts with the Rukahuya Scrapyard. Yep. And the idea was proposed that... AHS acquire um, a P40 as a sort of a restoration project, you know, yes, um, as yeah. a sort of a like a, a branch enterprise. Right. And one of the members had a P40 fuselage that was pretty bad, looked like it had been hit by a truck, it was obviously beyond any sort of rectification work but it still weighed whatever a P40 fuselage weighs. So a deal was done where they would swap this for one in better condition that was still at Hamilton, and the scrap man didn't care because he was still getting his thousand pounds of pure aluminium. Um, And when this was proposed, of course, um, Auckland Branch was in favour of it. I mean, I was a very junior kid at the time. I was just sort of looking on. Um, But the people who were running AHS, then based in Christchurch, immediately rose up in horror at this prospect of this because just as a group of people that meant that if the thing happened to fall on somebody's foot then each and every one of those members would be personally liable right so um they sort of said no way jose we're not doing that in the name of ahs um and of course a couple of things then happened moves were then underway to make ahs into an incorporated society which of course then limits the liability of the membership but also of course those involved with the p40 then got a bit of a pip and decided that they would pursue the matter on an individual basis um, and went off and retrieved the p40 and all sorts of things happened after that Um, but really that's as far as that one got in terms of ahs Motet at that point was a pretty marginal enterprise. It was the early days and really they were trying to sort of get exhibits, get exhibits undercover and put a guy at the door to charge somebody some money to have a look at them so they could get some sort of a cash flow. Um, And I went out there a few times and did a little bit but really the emphasis was on fiberglass and plastic piping just to get the thing looking externally complete and paint some American colours on it so right. the punters would come and pay their two and six to come and have a look. Yep. And even at that point I knew that was not the way to go so I sort of dropped out of that angle. Um, later on there was some discussion about the Gloucester Meteor which there was some queries about the eventual fate of it. Yeah as to whether it had been sold and what happened to it. And there was... Some people had the belief that it had gone to the Auckland Museum and was somewhere out there. There was Sylvia Park was mentioned. There was a Auckland Museum store in which there was this brand-new gleaming Gloucester Meteor <laughs> all ready to be tanked up and flown away. Um, so I got on to, I thought, well, why not go and ask? So I actually got in touch with the Auckland Museum and said, golly gosh, can we have a look at your Gloucester Meteor? To which they intelligently replied, we don't have one. Yep. 
um, which sort of put that ghost to rest. And then, of course, since then, we now know that it was Captain Homsonville. But the guy at the museum, who was no slug, saw his chance and said, well, you're here, can you have a look at these propellers? Because we'd like to know what these propellers are off, because we've got these wooden propellery things, and they've got numbers and letters on them, and we don't know what they're from. Right. So I said, oh, yeah, okay, well, I'd have a look. So I had a look at them and checked a few things out. And I think I got on to John King at the time, and he was able to come up with some history of these things. Um, some of them, I think, were from John Seabrook that he'd, he'd brought back and eventually given, um, you know, SC5As and snipes and that sort of stuff. Right, yeah. Um, and then the guy said, well, that's all very good. Thank you very much for that. And now we've got the zero which you know we are not really sure what to do with it and so again there was some doubts about the the history of the thing yep. uh, it's been fairly well covered and was was brought back from Poganville at the end of the war attempts were made to try and fly it but that didn't actually happen um, and it ended up fortuitously in the hands of the museum and so there was a guy, Andrew Wilkins, and I, we dug ourselves a set of metric spanners and went up there and started pulling bits of the zero off, really to try and find out where it came from, what sort of markings were on it. Yep. And considering our total lack of knowledge of the Japanese language, um, we didn't get all that far because we were limited just two guys on a stepladder and some metric spanners so we yep. took off what we could and we found a few sort of data plates and labels and things but they tended to relate to camera guns and don't push here and hydraulic fluid and so on so we did what we could and I took some photographs of the exterior markings and we worked out that what they were from and the thing sort of hibernated there for a few years and then I got another message from them that they actually had had contact from the Australian War Museum who were in the process of restoring a zero they had and their aircraft was rather more dismantled than the one here so they were sending a couple of technicians over to go through our one and see what they could find of how to put these together. Right. So I went out there and of course they had gear where they could lift the engine out and this sort of stuff. And at that point we then did find um, proof from the, from the data plates that it was actually built up from two separate aircraft. Ah. If you think of a modern aircraft, I mean you take the wings off the fuselage, but these things were actually built like a Spitfire. The front fuselage and the wings were actually manufactured in one piece. And then the tail, of course, was bolted on. So if you were going to take the thing from A to B um, by road or rail, you took the tail off rather than take the wings off. Yep. And from what we can make out, what happened, of course, the, the airfield where these aircraft had been located had been fairly heavily bombed. And the blast damage, of course, had damaged a lot of aircraft. So they had skulked around and they'd found the front end of one and the back end of another and bolted the two together. Right. Uh, and they had nominated a pilot to fly it. He was actually brought in by float plane. And at this point, of course, it was getting very near the end of the war for them. And he and the mechanics had had a, a discussion over some sake one night and decided it would be good for all their health if they worked very slowly on, on finishing this thing off, which is what they did. So they actually were surrendered before the aircraft was able to, to be flown, ah, okay. which was um, meant that he survived the war. And uh, so, yeah, that was the the um, 
the results of the investigation into the zero, which was an interesting ex- ex- exercise, pulling it apart and putting it back together again. And we did actually, in the end, um, the chap who had been the intended pilot did actually come to New Zealand a few years later, and I happened to meet him. And uh, we shook hands, and he gave me several packets of cigarettes, which, was considering I don't smoke, were not a lot of use. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was an interesting um, exercise as far as that sort of thing went. Right, and if if they had got it back together before the war ended, would he have then flown it as a kamikaze pilot? That is the accepted wisdom when they um, when they write it up now. That's what they intend. I suspect not. I think that they were going to try and get it back to some sort of um, Japanese naval base to use as a general mix of the aircraft. Right. But um, he was unwilling to put his money on either way, I suppose. Okay. (laughs) Being a fairly sensible chap. Right. All right. Yeah, so that really, as I say, I've not had a lot of direct involvement with... um, with aircraft restoration, sort of just within those couple of confines, really. Right, right. Um, just getting back to the uh, the forum itself, I always ask the interviewees uh, what their favourite threads have been on the forum, and I wondered if you have sort of, you know, a handful of favourite threads from the past. I think the one that I've had the most enjoyment doing was the Dakota one, the DC threes, and. I presumably I would say I mean my interest is more civil than military I mean I'm you know interested in New Zealand aircraft civil and military but I'm more of a sort of a civil orientation I suppose because of my background I suppose one's to deal with um, the early you know the the Masterton and Omaka um, World War One replica type things right Um, I suspect I was born somewhere around about 50 years too late (laughs) (laughs) visions of seeing snooping in the Red Baron in an early life but um, (laughs) yeah Um, but yeah I've always sort of had some sort of fascination with I remember reading when I was very young about the chap in the States who set up old old Rhinebeck which was basically the first sort of replica World War I aerodrome uh, exercise and that would have been 1960 or thereabouts and yeah, I've been really interested to see the, the camel and the SC5s and that sort of thing that have now come here, because um, that takes you back to that era. It's quite remarkable what they've done down there, isn't it? It's just fantastic. I think it's quite s- staggering in terms of what we have achieved in New Zealand in terms of vintage aviation. The first warbird that I actually saw in action was the mobile Mustang. Oh, yeah, yep. Which goes back to, to the mid-60s. Prior to that, the only ex-military aircraft that really could be operated were either ex-trainers like Tiger Moths or transport aircraft like the DC-3s. But obviously he managed to pull some strings somewhere on the line and get authorization to run the Mustang. And then, of course, a few years later, the, the Warbirds group set up at Ardmore and were able to, um, to get the Harvard thing moving. Yep. And since then, I think we've been very fortunate that we've had people like Tim Wallace, Peter Jackson, and um, a few others who have both the resources and the interest to plough into what must obviously be a financially losing exercise. Yep. And 
to do that in such a small country, I think, is actually quite amazing. Uh, absolutely, I totally agree, and, and I think the the, the um, vintage aviator limited the way that they're not just replicating aircraft, but they're now building the engines and the the the, the, the absolute detail that they're going into. Um, to bring these things back from the dead is just amazing. Yes, when you, and when you go around the Omaka Museum and see what they've got there, and as you say, Masterton, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're virtually um, continuations of the original production. Yeah, exactly. And to find out what's come out of the woodwork, I mean, why would you go to South America to try and find a Beardmore engine? I mean, if you were looking for a World War One bear more engine, I can't really conceive why you'd start looking in South America. But obviously, somebody did and found one and brought it back. Right. So there's obviously a great detective work going on in there somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, are there any other sort of aviation matters on your mind that you want to talk about before we close? I think the main thing that concerns me at this stage of the game is, as I've said, the the problems we're now looking at with general aviation and sport aviation, where access for the ordinary person is becoming more and more restricted. Right. And I can see this as a major problem. I mean, if you're a young guy now, where do you go to sort of um, feed the desire? Yeah. And... I mean, when I was a kid, you know, ATC was actually part of the Air Force. So you certainly had access, you know, I mean, I had flights in Sunderland's, Bristol Freighters, even a flight in the Vampire, which was an experience. Wow. And Harvard's as well. And, you know, a similar thing with the Air Scouts at, at that stage of the game. And, but these days it's becoming more and more restrictive. And I think that is something that we are going to regret in 20, 30 years time when aviation has become more of a niche activity yeah. rather than something that can be supported by a broad base of population and the risk I see is that if the powers that be adopt a hostile attitude towards the general population then generally speaking that is then going eventually to be fed back as to hostility towards aviation if you try and set up an airfield or an airstrip or you know any activity like that you now run into a lot of hostility places like Dairy Flat Airfield <coughs> you certainly wouldn't get the chance to set one up now as you could 40 years ago no. you would have you know everybody from the local landowners the council Uncle Tob Cobley and all pointing out how you're disrupting the local bird life and driving the worms underground and reducing the value of surrounding housing and all these other problems. Yes, yeah. Which I think, you know, is not something that we should be actively working towards. So I think, you know, we need to adopt a much more open attitude towards um, letting people look into our world, really. Right, right. How long have you been flying? I've now been flying since myself, since 1991. Yep. First, my first sort of first-hand aviation activities as an adult, I guess, were parachuting. I got involved with the Auckland Parachute Club, who were then based at Ardmore. And in those days, it was all sort of on your own static line stuff out of 185. 
over Ardmore, um, which was when you're coming down and you're whichever way you go, you seem to be landing on top of a hangar. <laughs> but the drawback there, of course, was that all the um, aircraft have to shut down during the parachuting operations. Yep. So shortly after I sort of did that exercise, we got moved off to to Pukekohe East and a strip of pit at uh, um, Miranda and a few other places. Um, yep. And then I had family pressure put on me for indulging in this dangerous activity so I gave that up and I took up motor racing instead <laughs> which I which I at least considered to be less dangerous um, so I did a couple of um, couple of years of that I got my international driving license and then you get to the point where you've got to decide you know do I pursue this with a lot more time and money or do I, I flag it now yeah. and I knew I was not going to be the next world champion so at that point I sort of flagged that and went off and did other things um, with life and still kept on visiting airfields and taking photographs yep. and then around about 1990 my, my wife decided to go overseas for a fortnight and then she decided at that stage that she wasn't going to come back so you then get left thinking what are you going to do next right. around about that time there was a TV program called the name of it. The Challenges of Erica was some such name like that. And the story basically was this woman had started cleaning out the house and she found this diary that she had written she, when she was 13 and in the diary she had listed all the things she was going to do before she was 30. Right. And this was the day of her 29th birthday and she had not done any of them. So she decided to set off and do all these things in this diary before she was 30 yep. and of course each episode of the program was doing one of these challenges so I thought oh golly gosh let's do the same thing so I sat down and I made this list of things that I was going to do because one day you wake up and you're too old and you can't yep. Yep. so unless you do it now you're not going to do it the first one I did was to buy my own boat and sail up underneath the harbour bridge and to do that I needed to learn to sail so I went down to the yacht club and enrolled for sailing lessons and some guy gave me a couple of lessons and said well he was actually now too busy but he would pass me on to this to a young guy who was an assistant instructor yep. and he turned out to be a, a I don't know 17 8 year old kid who was busy dropping out of AUT and he took me out on this laser and taught me how to sail which mostly involved falling out of the laser and um, but since then Dean Barker has gone on to better things um, wow. <laughs> so I can say I was taught to sail by Dean Barker wow. so having done that the next thing on my list was the flying thing and I thought right my ambition was to fly solo so I went out to Ardmore and, and enrolled at Waitamata and away we went with Tom Hawks and of course I got to the solo stage and somehow it just sort of never really stopped I sort of <laughs> kept on going after that so um, yeah one thing leads to another and um, then shortly after I got my license I did a bit of flying in a in a Piper Cub which I had decided I would like to try tail draggers yep. and then I happened to meet a, another lady who I was quite keen on so I thought, well, I need to make sure that she could hack this. So I took her out to the cub and put her in the back seat and took off in the cub and said, how about that? And she said, that's great. <laughs> so <laughs> that's worked out really well. We'd really enjoy going flying together up and down the country. Great. Okay. Uh, and um, 
in your long uh, association with flying, um, both before you had your licence and that, what, what do you think was the best thing you've flown in? You mentioned a vampire before, was that your... Oh, that was just in the ATC, that was yeah. just sort of ATC flights and a, a vampire trainer, I mean, it's a bit like being in a Volkswagen Beetle doing 150 miles an hour, there's sort of <laughs> not much in front of you as you, as you go along. Um, the aircraft I was, I've actually really enjoyed was the Air Tourer. Um, once I got my license at Ardmore, there was Ardmore at that point had been sold into private hands and I could see that the people who own it, who are basically property developers, are looking at getting an economic return out of the field. Yeah. And of course that generally means they really want to cater for places like Ardmore Flying School who train overseas cadets for airlines and really they just quote a price and you know the landing fees and that sort of cost are a small factor of it and I thought well this is going to go up and up so I started to look around and I'd actually set out one of the things I did when I got my license was to try and fly into as many airfields around the Auckland area as I could get to yeah Pikes Point Hobsonville I managed to get into before it closed Waiheke Great Barrier and of course there was Fenuapai so they had an air show on at Fenuapai and they were al- allowing civilian aircraft to fly in so I hopped in the session I was flying at that point and flew over to Fenuapai and thought right I've got that one ticked off I was having a wander around the air show and I ran into an instructor whom I, I knew and he's we got chatting and I said I was looking at moving elsewhere and looking at North Shore and he said well why don't you come and fly here and I said well really I have to be invited so he said okay here's the piece of paper there's your invite <laughs> so that's when I started flying in a Whanupai. Right. and on the flight line there they had an air tourer and it was one of the ex-air force ones which was 160 horse constant speed um, and I decided that that would be something that would be interesting so I arranged for an instructor to do me a rating on the air tourer yep. and he was some grizzled old ex-police sergeant whose basic um, system was to say well here's the control to do that and if you don't do it properly it'll kill you and you must make sure you do that because if you don't do that it'll kill you and <laughs> this sort of really gave me a lot of confidence actually <laughs> and as you probably know with a air tour it's got a central control column rather than the normal flight yoke yep. and at that point I'd only flown basically American aircraft pipers, sisters, that sort of thing and you realise how grooved you become I guess it's like after flying after driving Fords and Holdens and so on you hop into something like a Citroen or a Peugeot <laughs> it all seems to be very different <laughs> Um, but within a couple of flights I was hooked and that was my favourite aircraft. We really used to enjoy the, the Air Tourer and um, the only difficulty was the short range. If you have an, uh, an aircraft from Australia which is a really big country and you have an aircraft where presumably it's an Air Tourer like going from A to B, yep. why would you build something with only a, a two and a half hour flying range? But only the Australians can answer that. <laughs> Um, we did have our moments. We were flying down, I think it was an air show at Hamilton, and we were decided to pack everything into the air tour and fly down there. And we so we packed everything in and we were heading off, and of course we had to be to Hamilton by a certain time before the airspace closed for the air show. Yep. And so we 
set of the aircraft, bucked ourselves into the sort of the 16-point harness, which takes quite a while, and made sure everything is right, and called up the tower and said, right, we're all set to go. And he said, well, you can go now, but you've got, you must be clear in three minutes because the Hercules is about to come over and practice his routine, and our airspace will be closed for 15 minutes which, of course, if we had waited until that was finished, we would be too late at Hamilton. Right. So we thought, great, so we pulled the canopy forward and it wouldn't pull forward because <laughs> the gear in the back, including a couple of deck chairs, were jamming the whole thing. So we had about two and a half minutes to sort of clear the start the aircraft and get away. <laughs> so it's a really unique experience flying from Whanuapai to Hamilton with a deck chair around your head. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was a lovely little aircraft, and unfortunately, as it was a bit of an orphan, the um, the parts were difficult to get, and the end came basically when the flap motor went, had an electric flap, and apparently the flap motor was actually the trim motor off a Canberra bomber, oh. and they were talking like a four-figure sum for a new motor, and then of course on top of that, you've got the cost of the fitting. So the decision was made basically to um, to dispose of it, which I was a dissenting voice, but one dissenting voice didn't get very far. Yep. So the aircraft was sold and went to Australia, much to my regret. Right, right. Okay. Well, I can't think of much more to ask you, Peter, so if there's any sort of closing words that you have for this show... Yeah, I just think that, you know, as an aviation community in New Zealand, we do need to be very grateful that um, that the forum has taken off and has provided a sort of an online experience um, for a lot of people to either get di- involved directly or um, at least keep an eye on what's going on. And I think Dave's to be congratulated for the way he's run it and the time he's put into it. And uh, hopefully um, more good things will come. Well, thank you for that. I, I appreciate it. And it, it. The forum would be nothing without people like you, though. It's it's everybody that's on it that makes it. It's, it's the sum of all the parts. So. Um, but no, thank you very much for appearing today. I know that you're a bit reluctant, but it was an excellent show. So, Thank you. Okay, cheers.